Hello and welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. At the turn of the 20th century, white Americans and Europeans saw the Native American Indian as both a mysterious and exotic figure. Their perceptions were almost entirely informed by horribly inaccurate pop culture, and a man named Edgar LaPlante found it all too easy to exploit their ignorance. The king of con men, as he became known, came from a working class family in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and seemed to have a pathological need to lie and consume an endless tide of praise and attention. His unbelievable adventures would take him from swindling country churches by impersonating a celebrated athlete to an international celebrity doling out handfuls of cash to fawning crowds across Europe. This week's guest on the Can't Make This Up History Podcast is author Paul Willits. Paul is the author of several books, most of which center on larger-than-life personalities in the true crime genre. In his most recent book, King Con, The Bizarre Adventures of the Jazz Age's Greatest Imposter, Willits describes the incredible exploits of Edgar LaPlante in wonderful detail using a fun, novelistic style. Paul joins me from the UK via Skype to share some of Edgar's most successful and outlandish cons and dive into the psychology that drove him. Before we jump into my discussion with Paul, I just want to give an apology because I had a bit of a cold when we recorded our conversation, and I hope it doesn't interrupt your listening experience too much. Hopefully, with this topic being as bizarre and unbelievable as it is, you won't even notice. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The strange. Hi, Paul. Welcome. How are you? Oh, very well. Hi, Kevin. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for being on the program. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about you and your past work? Well, I've been a nonfiction writer for for quite a long time now. I mean, disconcertingly long time now. I look back. <laughs> I, I recently, well, late last week, we did an event at a, a little London group um, that's sort of Soho fixated. I'd, I'd and I appeared there for their fifteenth anniversary, and it was it originally I'd appeared at this organization called the Sahemian Society, a m- merger of Soho and Bohemia being their main interests. I'd, I'd appeared there 15 years ago to promote my first book, which was about a, a then very neglected English Bohemian writer, a uh, short story writer and memoirist, very good, who's since his name's Julian McLaren Ross, and he's since become, well, he's been reissued a lot in Penguin Modern Classics over here and all sorts of other editions. And that that was how I got into nonfiction writing. I, I, I got into it through a slightly odd route. I'd been wanting to be a, write, be a fiction writer mm-hmm. and had had a certain amount of encouragement, had, had won a sort of my, very minor prize, and which kind of kept me going. And But... I'd um, and various literary people had liked the stuff I was doing, but I found increasingly I was getting completely obsessed by the line by line, well, just style, and it was an obsession that undermined the whole enterprise. I was I began to lose sight of the fact that it was meant to tell a story, perhaps, and uh, uh, I'd, I'd end up being so focused on the minutiae that I'd write something and then start 
rewriting it and dismantle the whole thing. It was almost as if I was a car enthusiast who'd buy a car and then take it to bits and just be left on, with, a, with a garage strewn with parts. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd, I got to a point where I'd almost given up, really, and um, I'd become a fan of this writer, as I mentioned, the short story writer and novelist, very versatile memoirist, Julian McLaren Ross. Um, there's a website for anyone interested called Julian McLaren. It's M-A-C-L-A-R-E-N hyphen Ross, just with a dot com on the website address. And it tells you a bit about him. And I'd become more and more fascinated by him and eventually decided I'd like to write a biography of him. And uh, I, I got to the point where I'd, I'd possibly, it was maybe I was going to say it was ill-advised, but in some respects it was good. I'd mentioned the fact that I was doing this research to enough friends to feel a sort of psychological pressure that if I didn't complete this thing, I'd feel completely humiliated. Uh, I it had a book. The book was eventually published by a very small publisher who's a prestigious photographic publisher. We got a lot of attention for this book, and it, it sort of set me on a path. And I've since the the book we were going to discuss today, King Khan, is my fifth book, and of of the predecessors, probably the most successful and best known was a biography of. I've written two straightforward biographies. The other other books I've written have um, are more novelistic in shape uh, as well as tone. Um, but the, the biography I'm, uh, I'm probably best known for, I think, is, is a book called Members Only, which is a, a portrait of a Soho. And uh, it's about a Soho club owner named Paul Raymond, who was also a theatre impresario, a porn baron, property magnate, strip club pioneer. And he generally liked to challenge the authorities, the British authorities during the 50s in that very, often very stuffy period. And the, the book ended up reasonably well known was that it ended up being filmed with the British comedian Steve Coogan. It was turned into a film. With um, and uh, yeah, I had the very odd experience of seeing something that I'd researched in great depth. And it was I'd been always very attentive to the uh, to the look of the the world I'm describing and trying to conjure atmosphere. So I found myself sitting, for instance, in Paul Raymond's strip club of the 1950s, uh, which had been recreated for this film, and uh, yeah, very odd experience. I'm sure, very surreal. Close to time travel. I think it's as near to time travel as I'll ever come. <laughs> it sounds like you have a, a attraction to to big personalities when you write these books. Um, the one we're going to talk about today is uh, King Khan, The Bizarre Adventures of the Jazz Age's Greatest Imposter. And uh, you write about a fellow named uh, Edgar LaPlante. And uh, let's start the conversation about him with a headline that comes from your book. Uh, the San Jose Evening News uh, published a headline on March 15, 1917, and it read, quote, the man uh, who early this this week I think attracted much attention in this city explaining that he was Tom Longboat, the famous Indian runner, and that he had just returned from service with the Red Cross Corps in France is a faker. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what led up to this headline? 
Well, this particular man, Edgar Laplante, who's posing as Tom Longboat, definitely was a faker. He was a faker with a, with in capitals, underlined and in bold. He, uh, <laughs> yeah, yes, he was nothing if not bold. He'd he'd reinvented himself as, despite having not a trace of Native American ancestry, he was a white working class Rhode Island guy who had reinvented himself. The earliest sign of it is in late 1916, well, the sign of this particular um, impersonation or identity. Well, it's not an early form of identity theft, which we think of as a very modern phenomenon. He and there had, was uh, an actual Tom Longboat. Yeah, he'd, he'd okay. stolen the identity of the real Tom Longboat, who was this Canadian Olympic runner uh, from the Onondagan people. And the real Tom Longboat at that time was fighting with Canadian forces on the Western Front in the First World War. He was in France, stuck, as it turned out, in muddy trenches and shell holes, while Edgar Laplante was touring cities on the West Coast of America, pretending to be him and giving concerts. Not that the real Tom Longboat, as far as I'm aware, was a great singer, but Edgar Laplante definitely was. He was a minor vaudeville star. And he was in San Jose where he gave a couple of concerts at the First Baptist Church to, to rapturous applause. And he talked about his entirely fictitious experiences on the Western Front in the First World War. Yes, and of that. course, getting paid. Yes, getting paid, getting paid. But the odd thing about him is that although he's, he's, he is a con man, his, his motives aren't the straightforward motives of an ordinary con man, which is one of the things that made the story so interesting to me. Because for him, it was never really about, well, it's about the money in the same sense that money can, in gambling, be something, in top-rate top gambling can just be treated as as an indication of of the score for him money was just um a side issue he was a it was a for him it was about it was never about the money it was about attention about getting more and more attention he was an attention junkie really and he craved praise which was why he wanted to steal the achievements of the real Tom Longboat, who was a, a great long-distance runner who'd appeared at the Olympics. And he grafted onto that the idea of him as a war hero. And then his, he, Edgar Laplante happened to have a, a brilliant baritone singing voice. There's no, There are no recordings of it. However, I've got dozens of witnesses saying, this guy had the best voice I've ever had. He specialised in singing rather syrupy uh, music of that period, sort of slightly pre-jazz um, music, a style that was rendered outmoded by the arrival of jazz. All right. So how did you find Edgar Laplante? How did you uh, discover this person? Well, it was, a, it was a very, very happy accident. It was I, I was combing through the uh, online files of the British National Archives, and... I was I was looking for uh, I was looking through crime files through the London the Metropolitan Police files, of which there are more than ten thousand in the archives, and I was attracted to to true crime files for the same reason a lot of 
what are often clumsily known as writers of narrative nonfiction like me, nonfiction that aspires to have the sort of feel and uh, structure of, of a novel. Um, I was attracted to, yeah, true crime, just to backtrack, um, for, for the reason that it, true crime stories are intrinsically dramatic, or the best of them are, and the police files provide you with that kind of minute textural detail that's vital if you want to create a factual but novelistic surface about the look of things, the way people speak, what they say. Often crime files will have stacks and stacks of that kind of stuff. So I was in search of a story of that sort. And I but obviously I couldn't look through 10,000 of these files. They, the, the online catalogue really just, I should say, just provides you with headings, sort of pretty basic headings. And I decided to narrow down the search from 1920 to 1960 through the advanced search mechanism. And then I narrowed it down still further, just out of curiosity, by putting, I think it was just putting American in the, as a key word. And... It, it took it down to about 250 files. And I started trudging through these, maybe about 20 headings per computer page. And as I was scrolling through these things, it didn't take long. I mean, most of the, the entries related to long forgotten diplomatic incidents and minor happenings that really weren't worth exploring were clearly look very unlikely to be worth exploring, put it that way. And in among those was this thing that jumped out at me, this listing that said, I'll try and get the heading right. It said, I think, yeah, Raymond or Raj Tiwana, alias Edgar Laplant, alias Chief White Elk, American international swindler. And for me, it was just love at first sight. I knew this was going to be an amazing story or promised to be. So I, what I did was... I took down the reference details and and used the computer catalogue to actually order that file, which I then went down to London. I lived some way away from London in England. And um, when I got down to London, visited the, the National Archives, which are in, in the suburb of Kew, near the famous Kew Gardens. And I... It was a very exciting moment to be presented with this file. It's a bit like some old-fashioned cafeteria. They hand over these files in numbered perspex boxes. There's a great grid of these or wall, several walls of these boxes, and you just go over to a number after a, a brief delay, and you find a file that's almost gift wrapped. They're always tied up. These these old, often battered-looking Manila files will be tied up with a bit of ribbon, and you you take it over to a desk, untie the ribbon, and it's like Christmas. Have, yeah, exactly. You may well have a great gift, and I had had a wonderful gift from uh, the Metropolitan Police and the Swiss Police, who were responsible for the contents of the file, which went into greater depth about Edgar Laplant, alias Chief White Elks antics and they were even stranger than that computer heading had suggested so i was away from that moment onwards um did you have any challenges in in trying to find him because i mean i've done a, some historical research I, i'm a historian and and even law-abiding citizens don't leave much of a trail behind i i can't imagine how you would find somebody like a con artist who 
kind of doesn't want to be found? How do you find them 100 years later? Well, I think think that it's a good question. Yes, logic dictates that that information is going to be thin on the ground. But we need to bear in mind what I was saying earlier about him not being a straightforward con man, because unlike the con men you're referring to who don't want to be found, because Edgar LaPlante's motives were so different from an ordinary con man in that attention was was what he always wanted, he couldn't go anywhere without being photographed and speaking to journalists. He'd waft into town and attract tremendous attention, partly because he'd be wandering down the street in a feathered headdress and war paint. <laughs> buckskins so it was bound to attract a certain amount of attention and he would check into fancy hotels frequented by significant people and he had he just had a he had a huckster's uh, knack of attracting attention and he could spin the stories that people would want to hear so he left this amazing trail there are large stretches of his life where there's quite a lot of material about every day it's most peculiar. It's almost as if the press have kept this diary for him. So I was, I had a surfeit of material. There are places where it, it thins out and there are aspects of the story that remain mysterious. And in some respects, there's something very attractive about those mysteries. Uh, going back to the very first book I wrote, I remember people saying that actually they was, they said, one or two people said, oh, you spoiled it. McLaren Ross remained this mystery. I loved the mystery. You told me all this about him. And, uh, and now somehow demolished the mystery. But actually with, with White Elk, it's, the, the mysteries are just rather intriguing. Uh, and they're waiting in a way for, for, for someone to fictionalize them, whether it's through a screenplay or a novel, where you can obviously solve it through your imagination. You talk about LaPlante going um, from town to town in the American West. Uh, what's his MO whenever he gets into a new town? And is he raising suspicion um, when he gets into these towns? Well, it takes he's very, very plausible, uh, it, it just exceptionally plausible to, to the point where, as I'll, I'll talk a little bit later, I'm sure, about him meeting, he meets a Native American woman and, and he, who, who he eventually marries. And even she doesn't realize that he's actually a fake Native American, that he belongs to a category, which I heard the, the American writer Kevin Young refer to with great wit as a pretendian. So she was unaware that he was a pretendian or a member of the tribe of wannabe, which was another rather nice Native American term for these fake Native Americans. Um, so he would he would drift into, say, for a town, into town, for instance, like San Diego when he was on the West Coast. He would roll up and he would check it, he'd get off the train, he'd check into the fanciest hotel he could find engage people in conversation. And he was so charming and charismatic and good looking. And he played on people's desire to meet celebrities, because that's one of the, the fascinating aspects of this story, that it's it's really about our fascination as a species, really, with celebrity culture, celebrity culture uh, being something that people tend to associate with recent years, not with a hundred years ago. And he would exploit that fascination people had. Um, and 
very quickly journalists would be writing about him people would be wanting to hold events in his honor because he was posing as uh in this case as tom longboat the the celebrated runner he became, he was posing as a war hero and his his cv was becoming ever more baroque he was claiming to speak 21 languages to have studied at yale i think it was at one point and to work for the red cross so he was always for him it was and well for me it was a gift in that there's a certain tra- inbuilt trajectory within the book in that it's, it's a trajectory of escalation that if he gets away with one thing he's willing to to come close to repeating it but he's, he'll only repeat the, the the his scam if he can add something more to it just to make it even more risky and uh more yeah, elaborate it, it seems like he keeps thinking uh, how far can i push this yes yes that's very much the psychology yeah it's the it's definitely the psychology i mean i had a very interesting insight into him that comes from the very first criminal record i found of him which dates from i think it's 1903 or 1904 when he was he was 14 years old and he he was pretending he was he'd grown up in Portucket, the industrial city of Portucket, Rhode Island, and to a French Canadian family, Quebecois mother and father, and they were perfectly law-abiding. But he had he started um, playing truant from school and hanging out with, as his father put it, the wrong crowd, and he then began pulling this scam where he was wandering into shops in the main part of Portucket, pretending to have been sent by other shopkeepers to collect spare change. And he'd wander in and say, can I have some change for however many dollars worth of change from such and such a shop down the road? And he'd be handed a bag of this change. But very tellingly, instead of just going and spending this change on sweets or um, down to an amusement arcade or something that is a run-of-the-mill apprentice con man would have done, he simply presented the money to his dad saying this is money i've earned from a spare time job uh so as i mentioned before it was never about the money right from the very beginning and in this particular case as a child he was obviously wanting to to play the responsible young lad that was obviously a role that attracted him at that time and he was later attracted to very different roles but even in that case he's conning his father yeah, he's conning his father, and he's actually the the, the common connection between doing that in a, a with his father and in sweet shop. Well, with his father rather, is that he's and, and future cons is admiration is something he wants. He clearly wants approval. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. I'm beginning to sound like some sort of pop psychologist, but that <laughs> that is clearly evident. That uh, yeah, he's deaf. He wants to be admired. There's something slightly sad about that. And there's something also rather contemporary about someone who's desperate to be admired without having necessarily done the things that are required to gain that admiration, without having trained for years and years and years to become a marathon runner, for instance. And it reminds me slightly of contemporary reality TV show participants, where they want fame 
without necessarily having done anything to achieve it. They just need to be, and they want to attract gratification now. Yeah, there's an element of that with with Edgar, because Edgar was clearly had the tools to become. I mean, this is this does distinguish him from a, a reality TV participant because he had the t- tools to become a very very big vaudeville star. He was capable of filling two thousand seat auditoria, yet the applause from an, a vaudeville audience just wasn't enough. He wanted more than that, much, much more than that, as we'll, I'll come on to say a bit later. Yeah, you you sprinkle in throughout the book a little bit of his background in, in vaudeville, and, and he really does have the skills, which kind of made him ideally suited for um, this con artist lifestyle, because he can manipulate people and read crowds. Um, you talk about his, um, I guess I'll call it training, for lack of a better word, as he's <laughs> learning how to con people. There's a, there's a hilarious... Uh, anecdote you throw in there where he was literally a snake oil salesman at one point. And yeah, he was, yes. He convinced yeah. people that they had tapeworms. Yes, and he, yes, he, when he was a snake oil salesman, he was claiming that there were snakes caught by him. And, uh, he was he got into that through again, I'm mean, just, just the perfect training for, for this career. The 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 um medicine show stuff comes from he in his early 20s he left home having worked as a a laborer and he just wouldn't surprise surprise he couldn't stomach that sort of of life honest work yeah honest work hard work as well and he uh, he went off to coney island where he got a job in the summer of 1910 at one of the big amusement um, fairs called Dreamland or Greater Dreamland, and he got a job as a so-called ballyhoo man outside one of the big attractions called Bostock's Animal Arena, that was an animal-based circus. And Edgar's role as a ballyhoo man was to simply attract attention from the people, the, the stream of people flying by. Once he'd attracted attention through any ploy he could think of probably through singing through using his beautiful baritone voice don't have any documentation about exactly what he did to attract that attention but once he brought a crowd of people around him he would pass over to the barker who was the salesman who would coax them through the turnstiles paying their money before going into the into the show and ballyhoo men at that period Ed had a tradition of, or complied with the tradition of dressing up in what would be seen as exotic attire. In his case, he was kitted out as a Native American. And to him, that wouldn't actually have been that strange because he had seen, or he would have 99% likely seen, white men belonging to a quasi-Masonic organization that was there was a very big thing in America at the time called the Improved Order of Red Men that used to march past the front door of his childhood home. And they, the Improved Order of Red Men that numbered a million members at one point, including Teddy Roosevelt, had a strong presence in, in Edgar's childhood hometown of Portucket. So they would march past the door dressed up in their interpretation of Native American clothing quite regularly. So anyway, Coney Island, he's working as a ballyhoo man in the summer of 1910. And he's talent spotted there by someone from a, a touring medicine show, an Indian, so-called Indian medicine show, 
called Dr. Long's Indian Medicine Show. And Dr. Long's show toured the eastern states of America, uh, like a lot of medicine shows. And it was part of a genre of these Indian medicine shows that preyed on a widely held belief among the white American population that Native Americans enjoyed much better health than the white population because they had all sorts of secret remedies that were uh, the, the, well, remedies that w would cure all sorts of things, baldness, anything, you name it. And Dr. Long's medicine show would tour from town to town. And like other medicine shows, they would offer up to three hours cheap entertainment. And that entertainment included all sorts of vaudeville routines. And these would be broken up by sales spiels where these characters, Edgar among them, dressed as Native Americans, would work their way through the crowd, touting this, things like the Dr. Long's miracle Indian hair grower and things like that. And um, bottle after bottle of this stuff would be sold. And from there, Edgar, it, this is really a, an intersection. The, the medicine show is really the intersection between show business and crime. Edgar goes from there to become what was known as a pitch man, an individual medicine, um, patent medicine purveyor who would turn up with a little tripod table, pitching his wares on street corners all over the place. And at one point, he reappears in Portucket, um, sitting in the window of a drugstore, drugstore, sorry, touting his wares. And someone tells his Edgar's father, and the father speeds over to the drugstore, amazed and horrified that Edgar has uh, reinvented himself in this particular way. But Edgar has disappeared by the time the dad uh, appears, and Edgar then gets into vaudeville, and his and from vaudeville he he goes into this this strange career as a Native American imposter. And Tom Longboat is just one of the characters, not the most famous one, that he poses as. And in fact, the, the Tom Longboat posing is brought to an end when the real Tom Longboat um, finds out. Edgar, the poor Tom Longboat is, is, is having a terrible time, predictably, on the Western Front. And he finds that this guy in California is having a great time and making loads of money off his name. And Tom Longboat makes well threatens to find this guy when he comes back from the war and edgar is also being pursued by the precursor of the fbi the bureau of investigation and things become a bit too hot for him and he he morphs into another character yeah so he abandons the tom longboat alias once it becomes too dangerous to to continue um and he becomes then chief white elk and he has different iterations of that, but he, but he always plays a Native American in, in his cons, and that seems to be yeah. a, a helpful asset to him. Um, you already established he's not actually Native American, but how, how is he able to convince people that he is and get away with this? Well, I think various, he, he's the beneficiary of a confluence of in, influences that, for a start, I think people are, are 
just as they are now. They want to meet someone famous. You want to be able to go back uh, from from somewhere to you know, gone out to an event or something, and you, you've met this person, and it adds a sort of frisson of pleasure to be able to recount that you've met the famous Chief White Elk, leader of the Cherokee, war hero, football star. That's one of the other things he's grafted onto the persona. Just gets ever gets less and less plausible. Yet at the same time, more and more people believe it. Which is as it's the the bigger the lies are, in a way, the the easier it becomes for him. And the the, the racial lie is assisted by the fact that there's a genre of silent, very short silent movies that are being shown at that period in which Native Americans are the heroes and heroines, and they're more often than not portrayed by white actors. And they're also very popular Wild West shows touring, which don't necessarily have real Native Americans all the time. There are vaudeville shows as well, featuring Western stories with fake Native Americans in them. And there's also adding to the brew, there's a fascination. At the same time that Native Americans are being treated appallingly by white America, they're a subject of fascination for that same group of white Americans in that there are dime novels, there are the films I've mentioned, the vaudeville shows, the Wild West shows. So Edgar is a happy beneficiary of all those things. And that the, the, the sight to, for, for a white American to see what they think is a Native American in a movie that's really a white American wearing a feathered headdress just sets those white Americans up for Edgar's fraud because they would see him and think, he looks very similar to the person I saw on screen playing chief whatnot. He's he's the real thing, surely. They have no uh, literacy with actual Native American culture to tell the difference. Yes, and there would have been a lack of photos being circulated in newspapers of real real Native Americans. And so all that, that kind of ignorance helped Edgar. And he was clearly fantastically plausible because he managed to get away with it with real Native Americans deceiving them. So he puts on this alias of Chief White Elk for a while, and it is pretty successful. Uh, he becomes, a, as you mentioned a little bit ago, a pretendian, uh, and he ends up getting married to an actual Native American woman. Um, and they have a rather sensational wedding in Salt Lake City. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's one of the high points of the early part of the story, the American half of the story, American and Canadian, in that he... And the Salt Lake incident, really, the, the wedding is is it shows you um, it's useful in in getting an understanding of quite how charming and charismatic and persuasive he was because he rolled up in Salt Lake City in March, I think it is, of, definitely of 1918, and within a very short space of time, he's carved a substantial niche for him itself in the city on the second day he's there he meets a real native american named bertha thompson and he completely transfixes her and within a very short space of time she's agreed to marry him and he's only been in the course of the week and we're talking days yeah this is days and he's i mean he's gone off the train talk about the the to 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 mix um, 
racial references, he has a lot of chutzpah and he gets off the train in a, a lounge suit, penniless, and goes and, well, or virtually penniless, he has enough money to, to go and, well, he pawns his suit, raises a bit more cash, and he goes to a theatrical costume and rents a stage Native American costume. And he's away on that first day. And he presents himself at a local vaudeville theatre, charms the guy there. And the second day he meets this very attractive and very bright, you could almost term her proto-feminist. She'd what, be, what would have been termed a new woman at that period, Bertha Thompson. Very interesting figure who's left her parents on the West Coast, Northern California. And she goes off to train as a nurse and lives an independent life with other women like that. She's a great friend of a very significant American photographer named Emma Bell Freeman, who made a name for herself, producing very lyrical portraits of real Native Americans, among them Bertha, who posed frequently for Emma Bell Freeman. Bertha, despite her intelligence and worldliness, was fooled by Edgar into believing that he was chief white out leader of the Canadian Cherokee. And um, he, yeah, within that week, he'd, he'd also captivated the governor of Utah and the mayor of Salt Lake City. And the governor uh, arranges for Edgar and Bertha to get married in the state capitol the equivalent of the White House, really, another grand portico domed building. And only a week after him arriving there, after he arrives there, he and Bertha are married and local businesses, for instance, local car um, sales outlet with a Studebaker dealer gives him this massive limousine. Bertha's given the limousine and they're presented with a Tiffany wedding ring for the occasion and 5,000 people, the holidays declared and 5,000 people come to watch the wedding, which is in, on, in public on the steps of the state capitol. And for by the state of Utah. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, typical Edgar. And, uh, He's showered with gifts and he, among the 5,000 people, I suspect, were the Marx Brothers who were in town performing a show. That, they, were, they were rehearsing a show that very day. And I, I can't imagine, since most of the population were gravitating towards the state capital, that they'd have foregone that delight of seeing this uh, ridiculous event, which certainly accorded with their senses of humour. That's just unbelievable that he has, as you said, the the chutzpah to just walk in bold face, tell his lies uh, with a straight face, and he says it with such confidence that people believe him. Yeah, it was extraordinary. An Italian friend who was translating stuff about a later period when he ends up in Italy was would read these read her translations of newspaper stories of that later period. And she'd be unable to, to, to stop laughing <laughs> to transcribe this stuff and because she was just baffled by how people, how he got away with it. And he got, it was great at thinking on his feet. He could come out. I mean, he's, there are a lot of, a lot of, because there are all these press stories and people were so captivated by him. Quite often they recorded his speech. So you get transcriptions of conversation, of brief conversations and, 
there's a, a hell of a lot of charm and nerve exhibited in those conversations. Oh, yeah, he'd, he'd have to be quick on his feet. I mean, lying just had to be second nature to him. Mm, yeah, oh, clearly. There, there's a lovely moment when he's he, in Canada. He and, and Bertha end up touring Canada to promote uh, an all-American cast Hollywood movie called Before the White Man Came uh, that was a so-called roadshow production that would tour with a theatrical component, and they would demonstrate native american dances and talk about the culture before screenings and so forth and the newspapers there was a publicist accompanying them and then there'd be masses of newspaper stories one of which highlighted the fact that he spoke supposedly 21 languages which prompted someone on a on a street in a small canadian city to buttonhole chief white elk and say so you spoke you speak 21 languages do you speak scotch to which Edgar replied very quickly, exhibiting his amazing capacity for replies to these questions. He just said, yeah, the question being, yeah, do you speak Scotch? He just said, no, but I can drink it. Which is very much. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so researching this certainly kept me amused. I've never had a book where I emerged from my, my uh, office with, with so, such cheery expressions. He's... Um going on and on with these lies he's building them up bigger and he convinces most people but inevitably you know some people are going to start raising questions and uh, question the plausibility of all this um what is his relationship with law enforcement uh and actually the u.s military uh in 1918 well well to deal with the first of those questions which which touches a bit on your earlier question about his modus operandi and the 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 way he toured from city to city or town to town, he he benefited from, and and this is one of the aspects of my book that is is, is quite kind of consistent through it. That as I wanted to provide to use this story to provide a portrait of the age and through portraying the world in which he lived, obviously that is integral to his story so they're 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 in, entwined really and one aspect of that social history that's that's portrayed in my book is the communication systems of the day that for instance the although you could make long distance phone calls they were at a stage where it would take 10 15 minutes to be put through and all sorts of things, the, the, the lack of a, a nationwide highway network, that sort of thing contributed to those West Coast cities having a very much an island feel about them so that Edgar could roll into town, live on a very grand scale, telling his lies for two, three weeks, four weeks. And maybe news would then, well, inevitably, news would, people would become suspicious and questions would be asked. And news from other cities where he'd pulled his scam would filter through. And then he'd have to beat a very hasty retreat, probably hopping on a train one night. And he would move on to somewhere else where he could pull that whole routine again. Uh, and he was benefiting from the fact that the Precursors of the FBI, as I've mentioned, the Bureau of Investigation, had their network, much like the highway network, wasn't really there. It was, wasn't integrated. There were separate F, um, Bureau of Investigation offices that didn't 
communicate very well so that they had this very fragmented picture of him which would allow Edgar to uh, carry out this kind of criminal roadshow. All right and what about the military because World War One's going on at this point and uh, you write about how he's actually supposed to be drafted at this point. Yeah so he was it was a draft dodger and he he with again supreme chutzpah ends up posing as an army recruiter lambasting <laughs> draft dodgers <laughs> there is this the cheek of this man knows no boundaries and he yeah so he he was posing as i mean he was a very successful recruiter and there are a lot of references to him as a genuine cherokee who's one of the most significant army recruiters in america of that period and he's speaking in front of huge crowds, touring around America. And at one point in 1918, he joins up with a U.S. Navy recruiting troop. And this is one of those aspects of the story that really conforms with that cliche about you, you, you really couldn't make it up and truth being stranger than fiction, that he, he teams up with a naval recruiter a very shifty character, not quite on the uh, Richter scale of Edgar, Richter scale nine of Edgar's shiftiness, but uh, shifty nonetheless. A guy called Frank Spaulding, who was a talented singer who would perform at recruiting rallies. He'd sing the sort of sugary songs that Edgar sang. And Frank Spaulding, the recruiter, was known as Frank the Singing Sailor Spaulding. Extraordinary. So Frank, the singing sailor, was trotting around with Edgar and his wife, and they also had a a, a boys military. It was a boys school band that were performing with them, and um, yeah, they would roll into town and and stage concerts and and pull in all sorts of recruits while Edgar uh, carried on draft dodging. Uh, eventually, the yeah, questions were inevitably asked, and the, the, the U.S. military denied any knowledge of Edgar as a recruiter. He was yeah. elusive. That's one of, one of the, the fascinating aspects to, of it, is he has a, a rather kind of cinematic elusiveness. As soon as the police are closing in, he slips away. All right, so in the 1920s, um, Edgar took his show on the road and uh, made his con international. Uh, and he heads to England and France, uh, where he manages to become a national celebrity. Can you tell us about that? Well, you could say he became an international celebrity, but he he went from uh, he went from Canada to Europe, as you've mentioned, and um, that was that was prompted actually by not just with problems to do with the law, but also he'd been touring Canada with his wife Bertha, and they were touring with a roadshow movie, the all American all Native American, I should say, movie before the white man came. And during that tour, Edgar, who was already a heavy drinker, had added to his list of vices morphine and cocaine addiction. And this was driving his wife Bertha to despair as 
described in some very touching and often lyrical letters she wrote to a friend. There are a lot of these letters which provide a tremendous insight into the relationship. And they separate in 1922. And she talks about, rather typically for Edgar, she talks about how her poor dear Edgar is is, he's in such a tragic state. And she she comes out with a line about, I think it's about his how she imagines his poor moccasined feet treading through a wilderness of despair. But she has this rather poetic turn of phrase in her letters. And in fact, far from treading through a wilderness of despair, Edgar, who's a bisexual, has engaged a secretary in heavy inverted commas, this male secretary posing as Chief White Elk's secretary. And he and this boyfriend are aboard an ocean liner traveling from Canada to Liverpool in England. And he announces that he's traveling to England to for an audience with King George V, the English king, and an audience to speak to King George, who was then in charge of what was the dominion of Canada, being part of the British Empire. He was going to address George V to urge for improved educational opportunities for for his people, supposedly. And he was actually granted an audience with King George V. And Edgar Laplante, though, he was rumbled at the very last moment after Buckingham Palace granted that audience. But he drifted around England playing the musical circuit, and he bigamously marries in England a... Switch, Manchester switchboard operator. And she thinks she's landed a big catch, this millionaire Cherokee who owns oil wells in Canada. And, and one of the, the things that made me laugh about this story, obviously it has a tragic side to it, this mad poor woman uh, marrying this guy. She, one of the, the things, as I say, that made me laugh was it was the marriage certificate, but that's because at that time, the British marriage certificates would have a column where it said father's name and a column where it says father's profession. And under her entries, it said father's name, Billy Holmes, and it says salesman. And under Edgar's side of the marriage certificate, father's name, chief wolf robe, he's put down. And under profession, it simply says ruler. I love that. So now he's a prince. Yes, now he's a prince, which is yeah, certainly gives him gives him ideas. And he he and Ethel head for Paris, and where the escalation really begins. And in Paris, he 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 has uh, a cabaret um, job performing as a very very chic cabaret and music hall theatre, big place called the Palace Theatre that was frequented by the cream of the Parisian arts world, the likes of Jean Cocteau and people like that. And they staged these amazing, nudie, rather Weimar Germany-like shows, massive chorus lines and people on horses and God knows what. And Edgar, while he and his new wife and her son, his stepson, are in Paris, he starts frequenting the left bank. I mean, this is all documented. And he starts going to the Café du Dame, which was the epicenter of left bank artistic life. He, he only missed Ernest Hemingway. He'd returned to America by a week or so. But he was there at exactly the same time as Matisse, Picasso, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, 
and he was mixing with the, in this this world and he eventually the job at the cabaret when that runs out he gets a job with paramount pictures that are presenting another roadshow production a much bigger one called a western called the covered wagon which has been touring america has gone to london and it's finally arrived in paris another roadshow which has as i mentioned earlier a theatrical component in this case a troupe of real arapaho who'd appeared from the wind river sorry the wind river reservation in wyoming and they'd appeared as extras in this massive film it was really the silent movie equivalent of one of today's blockbusters with a vast cast and an enormous budget and the arapaho arrive in paris and edgar is hired as their chaperone instead of being the responsible chaperone he is instead going out and clubbing and getting drunk with some of his arapaho pals or he, they swiftly become his friends and eventually the arapaho get fed up of this tour and sick of being in paris and they want to go home fair enough they then head home and paramount pictures then employ edgar to replace the arapaho and to do his act his Native American dem dance demonstrations and so on on stage before screenings and the, the the film and Edgar head off to Brussels where he's presented as royalty and he's treated as royalty and from Brussels he then heads down to the French Riviera where things really escalate on a massive scale. The, the, what causes the escalation is that in in the Riviera city of Nice, he meets a fantastically wealthy Austrian countess and her stepdaughter. And they're really taken by him. They fall in love with him, really. And, and they're taken by his stories of being this millionaire chief with these oil wells and he tells them a rather prototype typical internet type story a bit like those Niger supposed nigerian princes wanting to try and get wealth out of nigeria you must just give them so many thousand dollars or pounds and they will amply repay you and edgar tells this story to the countesses about how he can't get the income from his oil wells out of canada at the moment because the british government are interfering and they start let the countesses start lending him vast sums of money and they bankroll what they see because they see him as the cherokee equivalent of royalty they bankroll a royal tour of italy and this is the italy of the early stages of mussolini's government and they rent a steamer for him to circumnavigate Italy. And, and, and just so, so we're clear yeah. with the audience, you're not talking about he arranged a, a massive one-time loan. He's no, coming back to these marks no, of his again more. and again and again. Yes, yes. Large sums of money again and again and again. And he's also conned. Uh, he's clearly got a taste for conning the aristocracy in Brussels because he's emptied the bank balances of women there. And uh, women are obviously taken. He's rather irresistible to men and women alike. But these two unfortunate and very sweet natured Austrian women uh, who have a home in northern Italy are just totally captivated by him and they yeah they just start pouring more and more money into his pockets and he during his italian tour 
the Italian tour is extraordinary because it's it's it has a slightly rock star quality to it in that he will turn up at these hotels. It's almost like Beatlemania has hit Italy in the summer of 1924 because hundreds and hundreds of people will lay siege to whatever hotel he's in and the police cordons will have to be set up to stop women from forcing their way into the hotel and people will be dragged away from his room if they've managed to get through from through the cordon and he's showered with gifts and at wherever he visits the uh, local fascist party uh, are showering him with with honors and he's he's given an honor called the corporal of honor which is a, is a rank that only Mussolini holds and for the Italian fascists of that era, and for Mussolini in particular, he's quite a convenient distraction because Mussolini has just recently arranged for the murder of of one of the his left wing, well, his leading left wing opponent, and this scandal threatens to unseat Mussolini. And, and the odds were that that he was going to be unseated, but through for various reasons, he obviously survived. And the the press stories and the attention lavished on Edgar provides a very convenient distraction. Edgar starts, for instance, in Florence. He's besieged by all these people outside his hotel and he'll have to wade through them to get to his waiting limousine that's going to give him a tour and there are banquets laid on. But in the process of going through these crowds, he starts behaving as he thinks royalty would behave. He's dishing out money, but he's not just dishing out small amounts of money he's dishing out bundles of high denomination notes of the countess's money we, we, we have a phrase in in the united states i don't know if you have it in the uk make it rain just throwing money out i heard that i haven't heard that phrase it's very good and yeah he's certainly a rainmaker <laughs> and um yeah, he, so he brings in even obviously people are more more and more attracted by the prospect of getting their mitts on this money and so he becomes this massive phenomenon and it's 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 yeah very very strange and he becomes it's it's written up by the international press from california to australia all over europe they talk about this strange what the what one english newspaper i think it was referred to as as the the strange the strange joyride of white elk or something like that and it's it's all at the countess's expense and inevitably sooner or later they want their money back and he's given away or he's blown in the in the course of about four or five months he gets through and it's very difficult to work out currency equivalents over this massive period of time but Mm. in in 2018 american currency he's blown the equivalent of about 58 as much as 58.9 million dollars in only a few months that's insane. <clears throat> yeah, that's definitely the word for it. I think that's probably the word for Edgar wow. <laughs> to a point. Yeah, so and there, there, there are a lot of imposter stories, obviously, out there. And my editor at Crown in America, she, brilliant editor, and she, she got just as fascinated with White Elk as, as I am and fascinated with imposters and at one point sent me quite a few imposter stories. And they're, they're, they're always or often fascinating, but Edgar's is just so extreme and just so, uh, shed such an interesting light on 
on the period in which he was living because he's he's there's something very Jay Gatsby about him in that when he's with the countesses he, I mean, he's so theatrical. He uses their money, for instance, to to throw a massive fancy dress party for the for the officers on a touring American warship in the Mediterranean on the then Italian island, now Croatian island called Brioni. And he throws this great fancy dress party. And he isn't there as the party's underway and people wonder where the hell he is. And then suddenly he rides into the lounge of this seafront hotel on a horse dressed in his buckskins and feathered headdress. The dancers pause, applaud him. He gets down, strides out of the lounge, down the steps of this hotel to a flying boat that's waiting outside. And he boards this flying boat and it whisks him away to Venice. And it's just so sort of Gatsby-esque and stylish. He's a bit like a kind of cross, but I, I keep thinking a cross between Gatsby and Tom Ripley with there's a touch of David Bowie about the sort of shapes. Obviously, there's the singing, but there's the bisexuality and the shape-shifting theatricality. There's something very rock and roll about him, which I think is why he seems, well, he has this, has a contemporary relevance that, a lot of imposters from the past just don't have. Yeah, I, I think for someone to have this amount of nerve, that, that that's a rare quality to have. <laughs> so, luckily, in many ways. So, uh, do you think that someone could pull this off today? Anything well, like this? A common sense says no, that, but... I've read a very interesting line from Frank Abagnale Jr., who the, who's the man that wrote, well, the, had the ghost-written memoir of his, Catch Me If You Can, published, which was obviously turned into that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. And Frank Abagnale now works as an advisor for the FBI with his own office there. And he's advising on catching these sort of people. And... Frank Abagnale was asked whether he could have got away with his cons now. And the expectation is for him to say, no, no, of course not, with the internet. Right. Actually, he said, no, it would be far, far easier. Really? And I think it's about setting up internet profiles that validate what you're told. Because I think the, 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 one of the things Edgar exploits is a natural human tendency to look for things that verify what we're told. So if someone tells us something, it's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like the, there were some experiments done in England a long time ago to do with customs officers examining passport photos. And they would look at the person in front of them and the passport photo, and they would look for the similarities, not the differences. And this is a bit similar to the Edgar's mm -hmm. uh, approach. So, Paul, I want to commend you on a, a really um, well-written narrative uh, story. It, it has a good novelistic quality to it that's, that's really engaging. Um, as I was reading this, you know, I would come out of my office and, and tell my wife, honey, you won't, you won't believe what Edgar's doing now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you approached writing it? Well, I wanted to research it as thoroughly as possible, but I was researching it with an eye to, I always knew I wanted to, to try and create that novelistic feel, which obviously 
in order to do that, you need to focus on specific scenes and in order to recreate, in order to, to recreate the experience of hopefully of being there, of Edgar being there and you watching him, you've got to do a lot of research on the settings, on the places he moved through, on minutiae, just like the weather, the buildings, whichever hotel he was in, that sort of thing, and to try and get as many as much textural detail as possible, the sort of things that you would get in fiction. Now, I haven't, because it's, it's, it's really dense with that kind of material, there's a temptation for people to say, oh, which are the bits you've invented and which are the bits you've, uh, that are real? And in fact, the whole thing's archival-based, that, that I haven't embellished anything. Uh, it's it. it Edgar embellished his own life thoroughly enough. And, um, it's so flamboyant. He is like, I mean, straight out of some rather uh, flamboyant movie. Uh, so, yeah, so I was gathering that kind of raw material with a view to, to creating these scenes and trying to, to, well, focusing on scenes that have a dramatic turn to them. Uh, so I'm very pleased to hear that that you experienced the book in that way. You enjoyed that kind of the the way it works because I I really don't particularly care for nonfiction that will just give you, for instance, you you mentioned how I've slotted in pieces about through the narrative about Edgar's past, but I'm never like those narrative nonfiction books that just have these great gobbets of. Born in 1921, Edgar grew up in such and such a place, that kind of thing, where it's just fact. So I've, I've tried to follow the, the, the pattern of, dis, of a novel, maybe with dispensing information uh, in, in small doses and where it's relevant and almost in ways that are analogous. Obviously, I can't get inside someone's head and wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to know what he's thinking, but I've inserted it in ways that are analogous to, to 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 memories of his for instance my editor claire pointed out that, that it was a nice idea to to perhaps just because we say when we're traveling we often let our in general people in general we let our minds wander across the past and uh, across our plans and quite often things about Edgar's past are slotted into descriptions about his travelling. So there's a sort of logic to it. Um, so I've made, made connections between something he's just experienced and something I know he's experienced in the past as a way of tell, conveniently telling you about his past, which obviously illuminates the present, but also through those connections, it mimics the connections that we make in our thought processes, really. And from time to time, I've used metaphors that are appropriate to Edgar's background, which also, I hope, conveys a sense of you being immersed in his world. So if someone wanted to hear the end of Edgar's story and, and find out what happens to him after he reaches this, this international level of um, celebrity and success... Uh, where can they go to find your book well, and, and learn a little bit more? They can find it in lots of bookshops and they can find it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, all the normal indie bound, all the normal online sources, most bookshops. It's available as an audio book as well. And there are, if you're curious, 
I also have a website that's just my name. So it's www.paulwillett.com. That's the surname, .com. And my website has a section about King Kong, this book. It has pieces about the other books and bits and pieces about me. But under King Kong, it has a lot of bonus material of... Uh, there's a gallery of pictures which may give you a taste for the uh, for the story. There's some lovely out of copyright pictures that I've been snaffling during my research and various things like that that might whet your appetite or, or having read the book might add to the whole experience. It was certainly an interesting experience for me to research and write. So I hope it's it's the same for people reading about it and listening about it. Well, Paul, this has been a fascinating discussion uh, about a, a truly uh, unbelievable topic that I, I don't think anyone could just make up. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Kevin. That wraps up another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm recording this during Thanksgiving weekend, and I just wanted to express my gratitude for all the support I've received in the three months I've been doing this. This podcast really does have a great audience. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode on Edgar LaPlante, the King of Con Men. If you want to stay informed as new episodes come out, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you'd like to give some extra support, tis the holidays now, after all, head over to iTunes and give the show a review. If you want to learn more about Edgar LaPlante, visit the podcast website at www.cantmakethisuppodcast.com. There you'll find some of my reflections on Edgar's psychology, links to Paul's other books, and a trailer for a documentary in the works on Chief White Elk. I'm pretty active on Twitter for the podcast, at CMTU History. Give me a follow, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to what I'd say is some excellent support by the podcasting community in the Twitter sphere. The number of people following the podcast has grown by like a quarter in the last couple of weeks, which to me is just incredible. But here are just some of the newbies. Our True Crime Podcast. Two Girls on a Bench. Pond, the What Doesn't Matter podcast, Haunted Happenstance, and I apologize if I butcher the French here, Grégoire Savoie, who is following from all the way in Sydney, Australia. What's up, everybody? All right, well, be sure to come back on Tuesday, December 11th for the next episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast.